If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. The Spanish flu is estimated to have infected one third of the world's population and killed 50 million people between 1918 and 1920. Entire families, communities, towns wiped out. We will focus for now on one particular mountain village in Eastern Europe, which fell victim to the Spanish flu. This village has a rich and perplexing history kept mysterious through lack of records. It was a border stronghold once occupied by an ancient people who left ruins, ceremony sites, murals, and symbols in their wake. The purpose of them left unknown. The creators of these grounds left no traces of their intent, but perhaps intentions will become more apparent as we proceed. This little village was considered by more Puritan forces as heretical, but attempts to spread outsider religions here never really succeeded. In the very early 1900s, before the Spanish flu began to ravage the world, a woman named Miranda moved out to this strange mountain village, eventually giving birth to a daughter she named Eva. But when the Spanish flu came to the village, tragedy befell all within. The dead piled up and Miranda did not escape the terror unscathed. Her beloved daughter, no more than 10 years old, died of the virus. Miranda was broken by this loss. After her Eva was put into the ground, Miranda walked into the wilds to a cave where she planned to end her own life out of sorrow. But something was in that cave. The heart of a fungal root colony which extended throughout the soil beneath the village. Miranda touched the root and a cascade of knowledge from past lives fell upon her. Memories that spanned centuries from those that had been buried near the village. Those people had been absorbed into the root, their DNA and memories with it, which meant little Eva was stored within the root as well. Miranda did not end her life. Instead, she took an interest in the fungal root and became convinced that she could use it to bring her daughter back to life. She took samples of the fungal root, which became known as the mold, to the surface and found that it could cure illness and injury. Miranda began to preach a sort of pagan propaganda of it, calling it a black god, and she would be its prophet. The village folk had been so terrorized by the Spanish flu that they fell in line quite willingly with this new faith. They took to calling her Mother Miranda instead, and she became a new head figure of the isolated village. For decades, Mother Miranda studied and experimented with the mold, using the residents of the village as test subjects as needed. Her eternal obsession was bringing her daughter back to life, but to do this, a suitable host would be needed for Eva to be placed into. To some varying degree, all of the inhabitants of the village were infected with the mold over the years. It kept them obedient and complacent under the order of Mother Miranda. Their black god was revered and worshipped. Mother Miranda was a part of their prayers. It was just their way of life. As the years passed on, Miranda used the mold on herself to remain unaging. At least one person was known to have eventually assisted Mother Miranda in her research. In 1951 or thereabout, a young medical student named Oswell E. Spencer became lost in the mountains during a hike and found himself in the company of Mother Miranda. The two studied and worked together on the mold, but it only lasted for a few years. Miranda and Oswell had extremely different ideations when it came to the mold. Miranda wanted it for the resurrection of her daughter. Oswell wished it be used to instigate a new form of human evolution. This difference caused Oswell to leave the village, though he went on to regret not saying goodbye to Mother Miranda. 
The two remained friendly to one another, and they went on to study and work towards their own life goals. The villagers, however, were not so fortunate. As Miranda's understanding of the mold deepened, so too did her cruel methods. Mother Miranda created something called a kadu, a roundworm infected with the mold that acted as a parasite. The kadu created conditions within its host that allowed it to incorporate other DNA into the host. A few examples of that we'll present shortly to make sense of it, but when the kadu was injected into a subject, one of three things would happen. A horrible death, transformation into something undesirable, or a successful symbiotic relationship was created between the host and the kadu. The horrible death occurred more often than not. A lesser degree of failure was the subject's transformation into a ghastly beast, such as a lichen or a varkolak. These dangerous creatures were cast out from the village or killed before release. And then there were the successful Kadao implants, where the host would take on the traits and abilities of foreign DNA placed into them. For example, the beings who would become known as the Four Lords, and please forgive my pronunciations, Alcina Demetresque, Donna Benevianetto, Salvatore Moreau, and Carl Heisenberg. All four of these beings were infected with the Kadao at varying parts of their lives and developed superhuman abilities as a result, stories that we will delve into another time. And while the four lords became mighty in their own ways and were physiologically extremely varied, none of them were considered viable candidates as hosts for the rebirth of Eva. Therefore, in the eyes of Mother Miranda, they were all failures. Miranda's experiments and discoveries continued ever on and on, but in other parts of the world, echoes of her discovery bellowed, namely through the work of her once pupil, Oswell E. Spencer. What did he go on to do? Well, I'm so glad you asked. In 1962, Oswell commissioned an eccentric architect named George Trevor to build him a mansion in the Arklay Mountains near the famed Raccoon City. George Trevor accepted the contract, and began designing a mansion that was full of mysterious traps and unusual puzzles. However, it would take a number of years before the project in the Arklay Mountains was actually complete. In the meantime, Oswell set his attentions to another part of the world, Africa. You see, in the 1800s, a fellow named Henry Travis undertook the venture of exploring Africa. His family owned the Travis Trading Company. Henry was able to use his wealth to fund the journey, and this man made amazingly detailed notes and records of animal life, geography, cultures, traditions, insects, flora, and fauna. Henry Travis spent 34 years roaming Africa. When he finally returned home, he assembled a 72-volume set of his discoveries called The Survey of Natural History. His work was widely discounted and shunned by the scientific community, possibly due to the slandering of his work by one of his older brothers in an attempt to keep competitor trading companies disinterested in Africa. Henry Travis was heartbroken over this rejection of his passion and life's work, and he died only two years after his return home. The Travis Trading Company went on to establish a shipping, resource gathering, and pharmaceutical branch of the company, Using Henry Travis's volumes of work as a guide, the Travis Trading Company exploited the resources and people of Africa. In the 1960s, those three divisions were rebranded under one name, Tricell. But Tricell wasn't the only company with an interest 
in Henry Travis's discoveries in Africa, Oswell E. Spencer and two of his good friends and colleagues, Edward Ashford and James Marcus, took interest in something within Henry Travis's research, a flower called the Stairway of the Sun, which was part of the folklore of the Ndipaya people. You see, this trio of men had a bit of an obsession with the concept of eugenics. And according to tales told by the Ndipaya people, consuming this flower either proved fatal or a source of superhuman strength. The Ndipaya constructed dwelling places around the caverns that housed this mysterious flower to protect it and to claim it. Though eventually a disaster of some sort forced the Ndipaya out of the caverns, but they did not abandon the lands nor their reverent protection of the flower. It was mentioned as a cultural mythos within the incredulous writings of Henry Travis, but beyond that, it was a secret to the outside world. The Stairway of the Sun was interesting to Oswell Spencer and Edward Ashford, but it was truly the third man, James Marcus, and his assistant, Brandon Bailey, that speared the research. James Marcus hypothesized that the flower contained a virus that could alter DNA, that it was the key to the supposed superhuman abilities told in the stories of the Ndipaya. In August of 1966, James Marcus and his assistant Brandon Bailey and a small team of staff made it to the caverns where the Stairway of the Sun grew and began to study. For three months, they worked around the clock and fought off attacks from the Ndipaya. But early December, they finally isolated the virus. It was called the progenitor virus. And now they could finally begin to study and understand what this virus was capable of. Something went wrong though. When the progenitor flower, the Stairway of the Sun, was taken out of Africa, specifically out of that cave, the progenitor virus wasn't present in new blooms. Back in their research labs in Europe, James Marcus and Brandon Bailey could not recreate the conditions necessary for the virus to propagate in new flowers. It was a complete mystery. Nothing worked. Their only source of the virus would have to come from their station in Africa, and getting access to it was exceedingly difficult due to distance, terrain, and hostile locals. It was nearing the spring of 1967, and in the Arklay Mountains near Raccoon City, Spencer Oswell's strange new mansion was nearing completion. Unbeknownst to the architect, George Trevor, Oswell commissioned another building project, this one under the mansion. An underground complex was being built, a lab and supporting stations so that the study of the progenitor virus could happen on Oswell Spencer's new estate. In the meantime, Oswell convinced James Marcus to move his research to the Spencer family estate in Europe and to maintain absolute secrecy of the progenitor virus and all of his research taking place. Near the end of March in 1967, Oswell Spencer convinced his two longtime friends to found a pharmaceutical company with him, which they would call Umbrella. Oswell wrote to his old friend, Mother Miranda, to tell her of his discoveries and that he chose the name Umbrella and its logo in remembrance of the symbols on the cave walls near that old village. In the fall of 1967, the Arklay Mountain Mansion and its underground labs were completed, but well there was a problem. George Trevor caught on to the existence of the underground facility, and it was just too risky to let him leave with even that knowledge. So Oswell Spencer invited George Trevor, his wife Jessica, 
and their teenage daughter, Lisa, to stay as guests at the mansion, which they graciously agreed to. Jessica and young Lisa arrived at the mansion on November 10th, a few days before George Trevor due to his work obligations. And when George arrived at the mansion on November 13th, Oswell Spencer told him that his wife and daughter had temporarily departed to tend to an ill family member. The two men had a fine meal together that evening, and the following day, Oswell gave George an official tour of the now fully furnished halls of the mansion that he knew oh so well. But what George did not know was that his wife was going to die that very day beneath the mansion and his daughter was soon to suffer a torturous fate at the hands of Umbrella. Jessica and Lisa became the first human test subjects for the progenitor virus. The mother, Jessica, was given a type A version of the progenitor virus, but the virus didn't fuse with Jessica's host cells. She was disposed of by Umbrella personnel on November 13th. Young Lisa was given the type B version of the progenitor virus, and this strain did fuse with the girl's cells, albeit slowly. She was kept alive for further experimentation, but her mind began to descend into nonsensical thought and she began to lash out using her new physical strength. Umbrella personnel tried to convince Lisa that another woman, one of their staff, was her mother. But even in her cognitive decline, it didn't fool Lisa for long. Her father, George Trevor the Architect, roamed the property of the Arclay Mansion for a few days, taking notice of the strange changes that Oswell Spencer had made to the grounds and the unusual furnishings that he'd chosen for some of the rooms. He was allowed to wander for a few days, but George Trevor was never going to be allowed to leave that forest. On November 20th, a week after his arrival, George made it known that he was going to leave the mansion the following day. Before his departure, while in the company of Oswell Spencer, George Trevor was incapacitated, drugged, and thrown into an inescapable gauntlet of puzzles and mazes. On November 31st, George Trevor accepted his fate when he fell into a pit and found a tombstone with his name on it. He struggled on a little longer, plagued by the knowledge that he had brought his wife and daughter here, that they too were probably suffering a cruel and violent fate. His daughter Lisa survived her infection. She was held in the labs beneath the mansion, chained up and kept immobile for testing and study. Umbrella Pharmaceuticals was officially founded the following year, in the first half of 1968. Oswell Spencer was the driving force behind its official creation. James Marcus, the man who had originally traveled to Africa and isolated the progenitor virus, was rather agitated at the apparent greed of Oswell and was a reluctant participate in Umbrella's founding. If anything, it was a distraction unworthy of his time but he was at the mercy of Oswell's financial backing, so he conceded. Umbrella would operate as a legitimate pharmaceutical company, but in secret, the progenitor virus would be studied and developed as a bioweapon for the U.S. military to keep the cash flow coming in. And while this new game of money and infamy began to gain steam, James Marcus and his assistant Brandon Bailey ran into an issue. They were running low on the progenitor virus. As it could only be cultivated in that far-off cave in Africa, another mission was required. Oswell Spencer stepped in, and rather than allow the extremely valuable James Marcus to risk his life on another adventure, Oswell hired a large team of mercenaries to remove the native Indipaya from the area and secure it for an umbrella establishment to be created there. 
the assistant Brandon Bailey returned to Africa with the mercenaries to oversee the steady production and shipping of the progenitor virus. Eventually, the Indipaya were driven away, and the foundations for the Umbrella Africa Research Center were laid. Access to the progenitor virus was no longer an issue. Meanwhile, James Marcus went on to head another new facility, this one in the Arklay Mountains in America, near Raccoon City, the Umbrella Executive Training School, a place of learning for young talent who could be molded into research and leadership positions within Umbrella. It was outfitted with everything academically needed to achieve this, including state-of-the-art laboratories. There, Marcus would act as the director, but in secret, he would head research into the progenitor virus. But there is a third member of the founding trio that we've not really spoken of. We know some about Oswell Spencer and James Marcus, but what of the last man, Edward Ashford? Well, for the most part, the virologist Edward Ashford seemed to just to have gone along with the planning of Oswell, a like-minded man that fit in as a founder of Umbrella. His departure in the story comes at about the time James Marcus took his position as director of the Umbrella Executive Training School in mid-1968. Edward Ashford and his son Alexander took to their own studies in Europe. There was some competitive discourse between the founders of Umbrella, but in July, a most devious plot was set into action. Oswell Spencer ensured that a supposed accident would take place in Edward Ashford's own lab, an accident that would result in Edward becoming infected with the progenitor virus. Of course, this killed the third founding member of Umbrella. How tragic. Edward's son, Alexander, took over his father's studies as the new head of the ultra-wealthy Ashford family. Alexander worked as a researcher for Umbrella, but while his father was a virologist, Alexander was a geneticist. He lacked the skills to produce results in regards to the progenitor virus and feared that his lack of ability would lead to the Ashford family being disgraced and Oswell Spencer taking full control over Umbrella. Alexander discovered genetic code within the virus that stimulated intellect, but it wasn't enough. The discovery was promising, but he didn't want to give it over to Umbrella. In early 1969, Alexander petitioned Umbrella for the creation of a new research facility, this one in Antarctica, based out of an abandoned mine. His proposal was a success, and by the year's end, Alexander had his own research facility at the edge of the world. Done in secret so as not to alert Oswell Spencer to his intentions, Alexander's studies of the progenitor virus now continued there in conjunction with cloning. This project was codenamed Veronica, after a long-dead matriarch of the Ashford family. Using the DNA of Veronica Ashford and genetic code from the progenitor virus that he'd discovered, Alexander eventually created twin clones, Alfred and Alexia, born in 1971. Project Veronica was a success, and while the boy Alfred proved to be intelligent, it was Alexia who excelled academically for most of her childhood the girl would remain hidden away in Antarctica. Now, let's halt here for a moment to talk about another scheme of Oswell Spencer. While James Marcus acted as director of the Umbrella Training Facility and the son of Edward Ashford studied cloning in Antarctica, Spencer undertook his own projects. Let's talk about one in particular, the Wesker Plan. At some point in the late 1960s or the early 1970s, Umbrella started to target children born to particularly intelligent parents. 
These children were taken from their parents and put into controlled environments where they would be groomed into compliance with Spencer's outlook on the world. If his progenitor virus could prune down mankind into a whole new superior species, then there would need to be a future generation that carried on his beliefs. Otherwise, there was a risk to the certainty of his vision. These children were to be that foundation if they made it through the selection process. All of the children were given the last name Wesker, after the director of the project. They were provided outstanding educations and opportunities to excel unbeknownst to them. Even when they became young adults, Umbrella continued to monitor them all around the world. Let's talk about one very interesting subject in this project, Albert Wesker. Albert was heavily indoctrinated into Oswald Spencer's propaganda throughout his childhood, but it didn't fully sit well with him. Not because he found it immoral or questionable, but it just wasn't quite the right way of approaching eugenics. It was a source of anxiety and questioning for the young man that followed him as he grew older. In 1977, Albert obtained a degree in bioengineering at only 17 years old and was recruited to work at Umbrella as a researcher. He started out at the Umbrella Executive Training Facility under the supervision of director James Marcus. There, Albert Wesker met another like-minded young researcher named William Birkin. James Marcus came to trust Albert and William with his research. They were made knowledgeable of the progenitor virus. Surprising, as James Marcus viewed the students of the facility with generally disdain and irritation. Albert and William both proved to be brutally committed to their work and highly competitive, but were not given outright access to the progenitor virus. James Marcus reserved that for himself only. In September of 1977, James Marcus made a breakthrough in his research. He combined the progenitor virus with leech DNA, creating a brand new virus base. He took to calling it the T-virus, T for tyrant. And within six weeks, James Marcus deemed his new T-virus ready for human experimentation. He'd worked his way through frogs, insects, monkeys, and rats, but no results were satisfactory. The self-aware, reasoning brain of a man was needed for control to be exerted over them. In fact, it was mandatory. Progress demanded it. He simply could not proceed otherwise. So he began using young students at the training facility for his experiments. Oswell Spencer and James Marcus began to truly turn on one another. The two once friends had become overly competitive and distrustful, isolating themselves and keeping vicious secrets regarding their progenitor virus research. By January of 1978, James Marcus was nearly ready to present his T-virus leeches as the future of Umbrella's bioweapons program, usurping leadership of Umbrella away from Oswell Spencer, only for himself. But signs of tampering began to appear around his lab, and then the order came down for the Umbrella training facility to be shut down, citing inquiry into human experimentations taking place there. Young Albert Wesker and his now competitor William Birkin were reassigned to Oswell Spencer's infamous Arclay Mansion to work in the secret underground labs there, and they brought with them samples of James Marcus's T-virus. But James Marcus himself refused to leave his private labs at the training facility and chose to stay there alone to continue his work, not knowing that William Birkin and Albert Wesker had taken samples of his T-virus, that they had betrayed his trust. Alone and with little access to external resources, James Marcus's progress greatly slowed, and he just became relegated to his own isolation, ever diligently working on cracking the secrets of his T-virus.
1981, the Code Veronica clone Alexia Ashford graduated from college at only 10 years old. Her father, Alexander Ashford, had indeed created something from the progenitor virus that was of supreme intellect, and little Alexia Ashford was immediately poached by Umbrella as new talent and given a position as a head researcher at her father's facility in Antarctica. Alexia's achievements and promise were known to William Birkin, who viewed the girl as a rival that he was wholly displeased in having. Birkin was experimenting with incorporating the RNA of Ebola into the T-virus to strengthen its potential as a weapon. Meanwhile, Alexia was creating her own unique experiments with the virus, using insect DNA that had dormant genetic code, not as an outright weapon, but to create evolutionary wonders. She outpaced him in almost every way. She took the title of youngest chief researcher of Umbrella away from him, and she hailed from a powerful family, and he hated it. Little Alexia also had a bit of an outlook problem. She was too young to be respected by her professional peers. She had no friends her own age. No one could relate to the girl except her own twin brother, Alfred. And, well, mm, Alexia and her brother had a bit of an unhealthy relationship. Alfred fawned over Alexia, and she quite treated him like a servant. She was not a kind girl. She was quite cruel to those around her. She even viewed her own father with disdain. In February of 1982, Alexia and Alfred found their father's secret records room that contained files on how the twins were created. In retaliation for their unnatural lives, Alexia injected her own father, Alexander, with her version of the T-virus that she had created, spliced with an ancient virus within the genes of queen ants. Her father served as her first human experiment of what she called the T-Veronica virus. It turned him into a horrible beast that was locked away deep in the facility. But Alexia believed that she knew how to solve this violent mutation, and she decided that she would use herself as the next experiment. Alexia injected herself with the T-Veronica virus and put herself into cryogenic stasis. By her calculation, she would need 15 years in that state for her body to fully adapt to the T-Veronica virus. In 15 years, she would awaken and her research would continue anew. As Alexia slumbered and adapted, William Birkin and Albert Wesker continued to work on the T-Virus, now the puppets of Oswell Spencer at the Arclay Mansion facility. The virus only had a 90% infection rate, which was unacceptable. William Birkin viewed this as a bioorganic weapon, but Oswell Spencer's intentions were kept elusive, something that fiercely bothered Albert Wesker. He couldn't crack what Oswell wanted with the T-Virus. He doubted that Oswell just wanted to monopolize military industries, but he didn't quite have enough data to see the big picture. Regardless, it had to have a 100% infection rate. There could be no immunities within the population, and this issue with the T-Virus would stall out their progress for a number of years. By 1988, Oswell Spencer's paranoia of his once friend James Marcus and his research on the T-Virus superseding him became too much for Oswell to abide. Oswell was sure that Marcus would solve the T-Virus puzzle and supplant him as the leader of the company, so Oswell ordered that James Marcus be assassinated. The Umbrella Security Service raided Marcus's lab and saw him executed. William Birkin and Albert Wesker took the dead man's research and began to integrate his findings into their own studies. 
James Marcus's corpse and his T-virus experiment, the Queen Leech, were dumped into a pit close together. At this point, besides the problematic 90% infection rate, there were persistent problems with using the T-virus as a bioorganic weapon. Animals and humans used during the experiments became aggressive and powerful, but they weren't intelligent enough to even comprehend basic commands. Their brains degraded too dramatically. They were unusable as weapons. But in an umbrella facility in France, a possible solution presented. A parasite, referred to as the Nemesis Alpha. The parasite itself was not a weapon, but it could latch onto an infected human's brain and circumvent any damage taking place, bring a victim's damaged mind back to moderate intelligence, at least enough that they could understand basic orders. William Birkin theorized that using the T-virus and the Nemesis Alpha parasite together would yield results, but successful bonding of the parasite to a bioorganic weapon's brain was rare. It had a very, very low success rate. A Nemesis Alpha parasite was placed into Lisa Trevor, now 35 years old. Lisa Trevor's body rejected the parasite and proceeded to absorb its genetic material, giving the woman a small degree of intelligence and causing her body to horrifically mutate into something beastly. Now she had regenerative abilities, ghastly strength, dangerous physical mutations, and a form of free thinking back. Torture for the woman, progress for Umbrella. Samples taken from Lisa led to the discovery of a whole new progenitor virus, the Golgotha virus, or just the G virus. It was found that the G virus was a whole new sort of violent and powerful. It changed the DNA of its host to fulfill whatever needs may arise. It reproduced rapidly, never needs cease evolving, and mutates the body of its host into something lumbering, massive, and nigh unkillable without extreme measures. Though the G-Virus was not befitting the intentions of Umbrella's military contracts, research into it continued alongside the T-Virus. That same year, 1988, armed with the knowledge of parasitic host potential working in conjunction with the T-Virus, the Tyrant Project began. Elsewhere, the Queen Leech of James Marcus began to consume parts of his body and take on the form and identity of James Marcus himself, a process that would take years to complete. In Europe, the number six umbrella facility continued research into the intelligent nemesis alpha parasites in the Nemesis Project. Then, into the 1990s, Albert Wesker departed Umbrella and entered the U.S. Army, gaining combat training that would later serve him very well. Though he remained closely affiliated with Umbrella and would return to their services, Wesker's ambition would lead him to seek out competitors to Umbrella as a means to steal and study Umbrella's data regarding their viruses and parasites so that he might surpass Umbrella as a ruling force over the world one day. William Birkin and his new wife, Annette, were transferred to a brand new Umbrella facility near Raccoon City called The Nest to study the G-Virus, and in 1993, began meeting with the Raccoon City Police Chief, Brian Irons. Brian Irons would become compliant in covering up investigations involving Umbrella's experimentations in and around Raccoon City. His allegiance was an easy purchase, a political stooge, who somehow held a seat of power, a malicious idiot with an anger problem. In 1994, the clone Alfred Ashford graduated college and like his sister Alexia, went to work for Umbrella at the Antarctica facility. 
Eventually, Alfred Ashford would rise through the ranks of Umbrella to become an executive and a director. Then, in 1996, the Special Tactics and Rescue Service Division, or STARS, was created within the Raccoon City Police Department, and Albert Wesker was the head figure. STARS would be a response team to incidents involving terrorism or large-scale crime situations beyond the handling of the Raccoon City Police Department. Raccoon City had somehow turned into a bit of a hotbed of terror and crime. The creation of STARS would be advantageous. But unbeknownst to its members, their orders were manipulated by Umbrella leadership and the interests of Albert Wesker. All of this compounded into a powder keg of greed, malice, and hubris, which sat ready to ignite. And ignite it certainly did, seemingly all at once, in the year 1998. Hey, it's up to us to take out Umbrella. Umbrella. <laughs>